All right, welcome. Like Steph said, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Thanks for coming this morning. So I, uh, I wasn't uh, originally on the schedule for preaching this Sunday, but uh, so Brandon was preaching last, uh, we're preaching through Philippians right now, but uh, the passage they preached on last week was uh, do, uh, do everything without complaining or grumbling. Um, and uh, he, so four hours later, uh, he he was playing with his kids on some playground. Like just, it was just him and his kids there. And like, he went down a slide and something happened and he shattered the bottom of his leg. So like, so he broke his leg and needed to have surgery and everything. I picked him up from the emergency room like, like Sunday afternoon. And he was just like, that was the perfect sermon for me to preach. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so glad you could make it this morning. Uh, if, um, uh, just a little bit about myself. So my wife is Becky. Um, we have three daughters, one in high school, one in middle school, one in fifth grade. So our fifth grade daughter, Gracie, she just went to, she's had middle school orientation this week. So she's going to be in middle school next year. So she's excited about that. We're excited about it too. So anyway, so uh, like I said, we're going to be preaching, we've been preaching through the book of Philippians uh, this semester, which is in the New Testament. So so the Apostle Paul and his crew, they planted the church in the city of Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. So uh, Paul planted the church in about 50 AD on one of his missionary journeys. And this letter from Paul to the Philippian church was written about 10 years later. So River City is about a five-year-old church plant, and so the church in Philippi at this time is about a 10-year-old church plant. So, so, and Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians while he's far away in prison in Rome. So, and while Paul was in prison, he wrote this letter of correspondence to the church in Philippi. And when they received this letter, uh, they read it out loud in front of the whole church during their weekly worship gathering, just like we're doing this morning as well. So this morning, this passage starts in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, and it'll be up on the screen. So let's jump in. Verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out, looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see how things go with me. And I am confident, confident in the Lord that I will myself will soon come. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, our, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not, only, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you, may, when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. So the big idea in this sermon this morning is that Seeing a real-life example is critical for making disciples because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Seeing a real-life example is critical for making disciples because 
You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Let's pray together. So God, um, we're thankful that you are the ultimate example. Um, We pray that by your spirit that you will empower us to make a big deal out of Jesus in our own hearts and collectively in us us as well. And I pray that your spirit will bring unity um, by unifying us through Christ and just seeing how he's the hero of all this. And um, and we can't like do anything apart from you. And we love you. Amen. All right, so in this passage, like Paul is in prison in Rome, and Timothy and Epaphroditus are there taking care of him. So Paul is literally chained to a Roman soldier while he's in prison, but his imprisonment is kind of like an intense form of being under house arrest. So that's why uh, Paul could have caregivers just coming, coming and going and providing for his needs. And in his letter to the local church in Philippi, Paul expresses his desire to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. So let's talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Like, who are they? So, so Timothy, he was much younger than Paul. He was a native of the city of Lystra, which was located in what is now modern-day Turkey. So his mother was named Eunice, and she was a follower of Jesus, and so was his grandmother, Lois. And they were strong spiritual influences on him. And Timothy's father was Greek, and it's implied in Paul's writings that Timothy's dad wasn't a Christian. So Paul met Timothy on uh, the first of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 14, and a couple years later, on his second missionary journey through the same city where Timothy was, like Timothy's family allowed Paul to take Timothy with him as his traveling missionary church-planting apprentice, kind of like a really intense, long, unpaid internship. Okay, so and this intense unpaid internship turned out to last a really long time because of, at the time of Paul's writing here in the Philippians, Timothy had been with Paul around 10 years. And in verse 19, Paul says he hopes in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to the Philippians soon. He was happy to send him there. Paul says he had no one else like him. Why? Verse 20, because Timothy will show genuine, real, authentic, non-manufactured concern for the welfare of the Philippians. And why is that a big deal? Verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy wasn't like everyone else, according to Paul, because he looked to the interests of others, like such as the Philippians, and most of all, he looked out for the interests of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is the one who mattered the most to Timothy. And that's, a Timi- that's Timothy. Let's talk about Epaphroditus. Like, Paul's words in these verses here are the only clear reference to Epaphroditus in the whole Bible. So although the name Epaphroditus was sometimes like a, nick- a nickname for that was sometimes Epaphras, there's no evidence that the guy listed, the guy named in Colossians named Epaphras, is the same Epaphroditus here in this passage. So Epaphroditus wasn't an apostle like Paul. He wasn't an elder or a deacon in any church, as far as we know. There's no record of any unique gospel work that he accomplished. There is nothing known of his family, his personal background, how long he had been a believer, or his specific work in the churches in Philippi, Rome, or anywhere else. This guy is practically a ghost who just kind of shows up in these writings here. But Paul talked about him on purpose. The Holy Spirit put him in the pages of Scripture for a reason. So why is that? Let's look at the clues. 
But from Paul's words, we can see that Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi, and he was sent by the Philippians to take care of Paul. In verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, which means that they're in the same spiritual family. He refers to him as his co-worker, which means they worked along side by side in the gospel. And he, and he refers to him as his fellow soldier, which means that they share common struggles in the work of the gospel. We aren't given any more details about why or how he became ill, because, but according to Paul, he almost died for the work of Christ, and the reason he didn't die was because, verse 27, God had mercy on him. And even though we don't know the details of his illness, it is notable that in the midst of his suffering, verse 26, he longed for the Philippians and was distressed for them. So Epaphroditus was focusing on the needs of Paul. He was suffering and almost died. And in the midst of all his suffering, he was focusing on the Philippians. So if Paul's words about Epaphroditus like, are to mean anything to us, like what we can reasonably assume is that at his core, Epaphroditus was, he was not self-focused. He was others-focused. Like He was a servant. And Paul says in verse 29, welcome him in the Lord and honor people like him. Like Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're good guys. They seem like good guys, but why is Paul talking about them? Like, why now? Like, I remember reading this passage for the first time when I was in college, and I was just like, well, Paul's probably just working out details and logistics. They didn't have email or cell phones or anything. This is how you'd correspond. It's like, this guy's going to show up. That's a friend of mine. They're really great. You should welcome them. Heads up. It's gonna, he's coming. Just be, be prepared. No, it's like, it's not about ultimately about details and logistics. Like, Paul is talking about them and sending them because Timothy and Epaphroditus are real-life examples of what Paul has been explaining in this chapter. He's talking about them because Timothy and Epaphroditus are real-life examples of the stuff that Paul's been talking about in this chapter. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Brandon, Brandon preached on the first part of chapter 2 where Paul exhorted the Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then in the next several verses, Paul just vividly describes Jesus in these just really profound ways and just about his nature and his character. And like we're supposed to, and he says to imitate him. The reason why Paul's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus is because he's laboring to make the point that these guys are real-life examples of what he's exhorting them to become. It's like everything that I've been saying that you should become in Christ, these guys are examples and living out, and like living it out, and they're not being fake about it. Verse 20, Timothy has a genuine concern for your welfare. He's served with me for the good of others and in the work of the gospel. He's truly living out the example of Christ who took on the very nature of a servant. Timothy, he's not serving others out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Everyone looks out to their own, looks to their own interests, but Timothy, he's proved himself. You should 
Look to him as a real-life example of someone who has the mindset and attitude of Jesus, like I've been talking about in the verses here right before this. Become what you see in him. And Epaphroditus, he longs for you and is distressed for you. He almost died being a servant because in humility he values others above himself. He's not obsessed with his own interests, but he's obsessed with the interests of others. Why? Because he authentically has the same mindset as Jesus, like I'm talking to you about like right before this here. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant and became servant and became an obedient to death while serving us. And Epaphroditus, he almost died while serving others. Epaphroditus was, was a suffering servant who was serving Jesus, who's the true and better suffering servant. You should look to Epaphroditus as a a real-life example of one who has the mindset and attitude of Jesus. Become what you see in him. Like Timothy and Epaphroditus, these guys are real-life examples of the stuff that I'm talking about. You should imitate them as they imitate Christ. You should look at their example and become what you see. That's why Paul's talking about these guys. But let's not stop at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Like, let's, let's zoom out for a minute and just like, and let's try to sync together. Let's try to be like ninjas with all this stuff here. It's like, let's, let's zoom out and try to sync the last three sermons here, like, and see the big picture. So Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are the third and the fourth examples that Paul has given in this one chapter alone that Paul says are worth imitating. First and foremost, he gives the example of Jesus for the Philippians to imitate in the first part of the chapter. That's example number one that he gives. And then last week, Brandon like, preached on the passage right before this where Paul gives himself as an example for the Philippians to imitate. That's example number two. And then in this passage this week, like Paul gives Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples for the Philippians to imitate. That's examples number three and four. Like Paul is saying, here's all these real-life examples there's Jesus, he's the best example. There's me, there's Timothy, there's Epaphroditus. You know why he's giving all these real life examples to them? It's because according to Paul, seeing a real life example is critical for making disciples. Because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are, and that's critical for the making of disciples. So author Dane Ortland, he says the following about this, this verse here. Christians need biblical teaching on godly self-sacrifice, but we also need our what we also need are real-life examples of those who place their faith and hope in, in Christ. Jesus is the primary model of humble, humble service, but it's critical for us to also look for men and women who, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, set an example of humble sacrifice because they are living in gratitude for God's grace. And what he's saying in that quote, the point that he's getting at, is that, oh, good, sound, good, sound biblical teaching? Great. That's good. That's necessary. But what, that's critical. But good teaching alone isn't enough when it comes to making disciples. That's because discipleship is often lacking and incomplete if we don't also see real-life examples of what's being taught to us. So 10 years ago, 
Uh, there were, we had a college student living in our basement all summer. And um, so near the end of the summer, I was mowing my lawn. That wasn't the only first time I mowed my lawn or anything like that. But like, so I was mowing my lawn. And then, um, so when I mowed my lawn, I took the downspouts that we have and I would put them over by the house, you know. Um, and then I mowed, and then like when I got done mowing, I forgot to put the downspouts back where they're supposed to be. So of course there's a huge rainstorm that night. So what ha what that means for you non-homeowners out there, that means your whole basement floods. Okay, totally my fault. Okay, so um, yeah, it was it was just really terrible. So there's this huge rainstorm. Um, so and that's also uh, in the basement. That's where the college student was living. So not the most hospitable thing in the world. Um, so the basement flooded and. Um, yeah, it was just really terrible. Becky and I were just bailing water out of our basement the whole night, and um, it was just really terrible. It was, like, I remember I was, I had this box of, like, my 8-bit uh, Nintendo system, which I don't know why I still have that, and I was just, like, uh, I, I slipped on the concrete floor, and, like, I, I think my feet went above my head, and, like, I landed on my back, and it was just, like, I just laid there in the water and just wanted to die, and it was just, it was just really terrible, and... Um, the kids didn't wake up when I screamed. It was really great. Um, so um, it was just really terrible. So, uh, so the next night after the flood, um, uh, Becky and I and our college student were just sitting in the room, uh, sitting in the living room after the kids went to bed. And uh, we were just reminiscing how terrible the previous night was. And, uh, and then something unexpected happened. Um, our, our college student... He looked at us and he asked in a really genuine way, why do you guys not argue or fight with each other? And he said that growing up, like, uh, their basement flooded in their, in their house, like their basement flooded in the middle of the night. And he said, my parents fought and screamed with each other the whole time. And he also said this other time, like he was uh, staying at his friend's house in high school and like their basement flooded in the middle of the night. This guy's really bad luck with this kind of stuff. So he was like, so he said like, you know, his friend's parents, it's like, they were just arguing and fighting the whole time about it. And um, so our college student just looks at us and says, I know what the Bible says about love and patience and kindness. I just didn't know that married people could be like that. Um, you know, and fast forward 10 years, 10 years later, um, that guy, he is married and has a family, and the trajectory of, and culture of their family is just really different, starkly different than what he grew up with. And... Um, and part of that is because he was seeing a real-life example of what he sees in the Bible. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And this is true for Jesus as well. Like um, Will Metzger, in his book, Tell the Truth, he writes about how when he first started following Jesus, the people in his church were obsessed with uh, passing out these little gospel tracts to strangers. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Um, but even as a, so he would just join in and do that with the rest of the church. And, but even as, he said, even as a young Christian, he would look at them do this, and 
He would just think to himself, why did God bother to send his son if he could have just sent us a tract? You know what, I mean? you know what he's getting at with that? Because like, God didn't just like, quick send his son and then right away die for our sins and then like, get that over with and then like, quick get back to like, his like, eternal union with the Trinity. Like, he didn't do that. Like, he spent, Jesus spent three full years with his disciples as, an ex- as a real-life example to them. Like, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus did, why he did that. But you want to know one of them? Because Jesus knew that you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Like, he wanted his disciples to see his example and imitate him. I was talking to Brandon last week when I was preparing this sermon. He made the good point that in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which... The letter is really short. That's one of the reasons why people read it so much. Okay? So like, and it's worth noticing that Paul doesn't try to comprehensively explain every little detail of what it looks like to have the mindset of Christ and what it looks like to, every, uh, to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Like, Paul could have tried to be comprehensive and spell out everything in this letter. Like, these are all the practical applications of everything, that, what it looks like. You know? And like, Paul was in prison he, didn't, he had the time. He couldn't do it. He wasn't, he had all the time. He'd just go to the parchment store, Timothy, get me some more, okay? And then some smoke coming out of his pen and stuff. <laughs> but, he didn't, but he did something better when it comes for, to making disciples for the Philippians. He said, I'm sending you these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, imitate them. I don't need to comprehensively tell you everything about living out your faith. That's impossible. Just watch their example and like and imitate them. That's an effective way to make disciples. Because you can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. A phrase like you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Um, I heard someone say that over 10 years ago, and I think about that all the time. And I'm not the perfect example like Jesus is, so, um, but I think about that all the time. And surely there are ditches to avoid when thinking about that phrase because the burden of someone changing in a meaningful way isn't ultimately on me or anyone else. And it's not on, the burden of that isn't on the strength of my example to someone. Like someone's heart changing is ultimately, that's something that God does. He does the heavy lifting with that ultimately. Like he gets the credit for that. So I don't need to fall into the performance trap with this kind of stuff. And on top of that, sometimes the example I set doesn't get imitated by others. Welcome to making disciples and being a leader. Okay? But that being said, it is a truism in life that you can teach what you know, but what gets reproduced in others is who you are. Like That's always a weighty and sobering thing for me to think about the end of chapter 1, Paul says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And when you dovetail that right there with like what we see in chapter 2, like the question then evolves into, is my life worthy of being imitated? Is my life worthy of being imitated? Is my attitude towards other worthy, worth imitating? Is my gentleness worth imitating? Is my opinionatedness worth imitating? My obsessiveness about hobbies worth imitating? Is my commitment to purity worth imitating? Is, 
Is my commitment to integrity when no one's watching, is that worth imitating? Is my commitment to the gospel worth imitating? Is my commitment and attitude towards my wife imitating? Is my sacrificial attitude towards my kids worth imitating? Is the way I talk about my kids to others, is that worth imitating? Is my fascination with politics worth imitating? Is my desire to be right worth imitating? Is my appetite for success and image and performance, is that worth imitating? Is the way I think about and talk about money worth imitating? Is my level of teachability worth imitating? And when I give those examples, I have freedom through believing in the, go- believing in the gospel to ask myself those kind of questions without feeling condemned because my identity is in Christ. It's not in my performance or of how great of an example I am. So in a gospel-centered kind of way, I think about those kinds of questions a lot. And in a non-self-condemning, non-performance-oriented kind of way, if you want to make disciples, then you need to be asking those kinds of questions as well. Are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? Are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? I have a master's degree in biblical studies. Is that impressive? thought about getting my doctorate. But when it comes to making disciples, if my life isn't worth imitating, then any kind of Bible degree that I have pretty much means nothing because I can teach what I know, but what actually gets reproduced in others is who I am. And if we're going to be like continuing to make disciples here at the church and by God's grace and by his power like we have been, um, you need to ask yourself, yourselves in a gospel-centered, non-performance trap kind of way, like, are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? And when we do that as a, as a community and not just individually, it's like, oh man, like when a community of people like, is changed by the gospel, it says something even more profound than a changed individual. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And even though that's true, we need to always remember that you aren't the perfect example like Jesus is. You aren't always worthy of people imitating you, but Jesus is. Like without the power of the gospel, like any kind of example that we strive to become will, be, will never be fruitful in his eyes because Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why we strive to remember him. Because the ultimate goal in making disciples isn't for people to remember our example, it's to remember it's for people to remember his example. And remembering Jesus and his example, that's why we take communion. When we take communion, the bread symbolizes his body and the drink symbolizes his blood. And those things are broken and shed for you. Jesus lived the perfect example of a life that we were supposed to live. And he died the death that we were supposed to die because of the rebellion in our hearts towards him and his example. Like when you go take communion, that's you responding with a heart full of trust in him and his perfect example that he's lived for you on your behalf. So before you take communion, like I'd encourage you, thank him for forgiving you and for looking to the wrong examples in your own life, examples that aren't rooted in following him. 
Like, pray and thank him for being the perfect example for you and ask him to empower you by his spirit to become the kind of disciple-making example that he wants you to be. And that's by his power. That's not your own, ultimately. Talk about those things with him authentically. And in doing so, don't make communion and it a religious ritual that you just kind of go through the motions with because everybody else is taking it. Like, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, like, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion because you just don't want, like, communion to be just another religious ritual. But if you're ready to respond to him on a heart level, like, with faith and a repentant heart and, like, identifying him as your forgiver and leader, it's like, pray to him with a heart of faith to, like, um, like, during the time right before communion, and then go and take communion. So you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and there's two communion stations in the back, and the worship team is going to be playing three songs, and you can go back whenever you're ready. Just respond to him and remember him, because he's the great example. Let's pray. God, we're really thankful for you and just like how you are the, our great example, and thank you for being our friend and our leader and we love you, and um, we pray that by your spirit, you will bring unity and um, in us as a church, because we're like united with you, and we need you for that, God. Um, we just can't thank you enough for yourself and sending your son. Yeah, we love you. Amen. <laughs>